0: Well, we continue our study of 1 Peter chapter 2, 18 through 25, and now let us turn our attention to God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. It says here, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. when he suffered he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed for you are straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls may god bless the reading and hearing of his word to us today well, this is a bit of a controversial passage that we have before us. It holds out to the modern reader, first of all, a sensitive subject, and then second of all, an important practical principle for the Christian life. And those are the two things I want to address today, uh, this sensitive subject that we see here, and also the practical principle that is included in these uh these imperatives that Peter gives to the people to whom he is writing and first the sensitive subject obviously is slavery some people might say when they read this passage and in a number of other passages in the bible they might say something like well there are many good things in the bible but you shouldn't insist everyone follow everything because some things are wrong or they're culturally regressive or primitive, and and we, we cannot accept these things today. But when we come to the biblical text, we must be careful not to read our culture back into it. And doing this will create cultural blinders that keeps us from seeing the truth and the application of the text. We read a text, but we cannot see its relevance because we are... interpreting it through the lens of our own cultural experience and history, not the culture and experience and history in which it was written. And this is why we need uh, even a simple working knowledge of the history and culture of the eras in which the Bible was written. And this understanding will make the Bible much clearer to us. I want to do that for you today, just uh, briefly, especially in reference to slavery and what the Bible says about it because this is a prime example of where people in our day get upset. Uh, People in our day and time read the words master and slave, and immediately the images of uh, the evil slave trade of the 17th to 19th century pops into their mind. Southern slavery, what the Civil War was fought over, uh, where people were stolen from their homes in Africa and sold into slavery... By Europeans and Americans. That slavery in the 17th to 19th century was a great evil. It was race based, and there was no legal opportunity for the slaves to gain their freedom. But this is not the slavery that the Bible tolerates. In fact, both the Old Testament and the New Testament explicitly condemn the practice of kidnapping people and selling them into slavery. I'll give you the two examples. First Timothy chapter 1 condemns enslavers, those who would steal people, man-stealers who'd steal people to enslave them, calls them ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, and contrary to sound doctrine. And in the Old Testament, Exodus 21, 16 states, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. These condemnations that we have in the Old and New Testament are in the strongest language possible. Death sentence for those who would engage in this sort of thing. So how did Christians in the Civil War era miss that? Well, I don't know how they missed it. Cultural blinders themselves. I heard it once said that if uh, the four most prominent Uh, Presbyterian pastors of the day would have preached against slavery strongly that there would not have been a civil war. Maybe they failed in that respect. certainly looks that way. But we're talking about a different type of slavery. In the Old Testament, slavery was more like indentured servitude, and Israel had lots of laws to regulate that. But in the Roman world of the New Testament, there was no of course, people weren't interested in God's law in the Roman world, but there was a very high population percentage of the population that were slaves in the Roman world. It's been estimated there was many as 60 million slaves in the Roman world in Peter's day. Now, this certainly was uh, included domestic servants. And that's exactly the word that's used here. It's a very specific word, house servants, that Peter uses here. Uh, But it also, slavery in those days, involved manual laborers, as you would uh, assume. But also, believe it or or not, it involved people who were part of the professional class. There were slave doctors. Uh, There were slave teachers and slave administrators, Now, slaves in Roman times were property. They could be inherited by Roman law. They could be purchased and sold. They could be taken because of bad debt. And of course, many slaves were slaves because they were prisoners of war. However, it was not race-based like 17th to 19th century slavery. It did not involve kidnapping like 17th to 19th century slavery. And there was the opportunity for slaves to go free under certain conditions, serve an amount of time or pay an amount of money. Some slaves chose to stay in slavery because they had uh, a good master and they were well provided for. You remember there's no uh, welfare, there was no social security, none of these things to to give people uh, something to fall back on in case they needed help. So sometimes being a slave and serving someone and living in their household and serving them was a good option for living. So slavery was a very large reality in the Roman world. And no one, as far as we can tell, in the Roman world, seems to question the propriety of slavery. You'll find Stoic philosophers, people like Seneca, a contemporary of the Apostle Peter, arguing that we ought to ease the bad conditions of slaves and grant rights and status that were often denied to them. But nowhere will you find someone questioning whether this relationship was right or wrong, morally unprincipled or improper. So here Peter and other New Testament writers like Paul, he's neither endorsing nor condemning slavery. He's just accepting it as a common state in which many Christians to whom he was writing would find themselves. And he is giving them guidance on how to live out the Christian life in their circumstances. So the Bible's not pro-slavery like we imagined it from the 17th to 19th century. He's just addressing people who were slaves, who were members of his churches. They had become Christians. How were they to carry on as Christians in their state, some of them willingly being slaves? Now, what does he tell them? Verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect. Now, that's well enough, okay? We Last week we looked at uh, the previous verses and its consistent with what he said there where Peter said we are to be subject or submit to every human institution from the emperor on down. Place yourself under those put in positions of authority and in this case, in verse 18, your master. But then he says something quite shocking to us especially if we're reading our own american sensibilities back into it not only to the good and gentle masters but also to the unjust now that bothers me when i read that cuz i think you know we ought to fight for just you know we ought to fight for justice we ought to not let people get away with injustices and oppression the word there "unjustice," is, is interesting because I think it's even more descriptive if you look at it in the original language. Uh, The word is scolios, which we get the word scoliosis, which is uh, having a crooked spine, and the word means crooked. Don't only be respectful and submit to uh, good masters, but crooked masters as well, literally crooked masters, unjust, those who would oppress those people. Well, again, this is consistent with what he said in the previous verses uh, about submitting to and honoring the emperor and the governors, especially when, as we pointed out last week, you realize that the emperor was Nero, whose policy was to persecute Christians. But this command to servants is very personal when you think about it. When you think about Nero, how many people actually knew Nero? I mean, you got millions of people under his rule and they did not have day-to-day interactions with Nero. It's kind of like us and the, and the president. You know, we, we see him on TV, we, you know, we hear speeches, but we don't know him personally, and he's, he's not personally interested in our lives. He, he has no connection to our lives. We are subject to his policies. And that was what was true of the Christians living under Nero's regime. But here, Peter is talking about people's lives, individuals who were servants and they were being personally attacked by their masters, crooked masters who, who can beat you. That's very personal. It's one thing to talk about living in oppressive conditions or in a, you know, in a nation that, where Christians were treated poorly, which was certainly true in the Roman Empire at this time. But here we're talking about individuals' lives that's something quite different. And it speaks to the principle that we're going to come come on uh, thinking about in a moment. Well, in reference to that, none of us here are slaves or masters. We can be thankful for that. Uh, we live in a society that values and protects individuals' freedom. We seek to end oppression and injustice. There are laws in place that keep this from happening. Certainly there are people uh, in our land who are oppressed, and, and even some who are enslaved. We see that uh, happening more and more with people who are being kidnapped, young people and sold into the sex slave and so forth, or workers who are bused from town to town and work for low wages and they have no rights and, and there's oppression going on. But we live in a land where there's recourse to to, to do something about that, however poorly we do so. So what does this passage have to do with us? We're, we're far removed from this type of slavery or even the bad slavery that we had in our nation's history. None of us are slaves. Well, we've got a principle here that applies to all of us, and it's a very practical principle. Look at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Well, the principle here is this. It's for us as Christians, wherever we live, to do good. To do good, being mindful of God, even if we have to suffer for it. That's what Peter is telling us. That's what he's telling the servants in their circumstances, but it certainly applies to every Christian in, in whatever circumstances they find themselves. Do good being mindful of God even if we have to suffer for it. Christians should always do good with that qualification, being mindful of God. You see that there in verse 19. When mindful of god one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly that word mindful means is usually translated conscience in your in its noun form this is a verb here or a participle and conscientiously we live conscientiously before god we are thinking about god in our lives and how we can live before him that's what peter's saying If you're living your life conscious of God, uh, conscientiously living before God, trying to be circumspect and to do what's right, and you suffer for it, that's a good thing. God appreciates that. He, He favors that. Twice he mentions an interesting word. Uh... That this is a gracious thing you see there in verse nineteen, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering gen- uh, unjustly and then uh, in the latter part of verse twenty, uh, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing. Now, most commentators understand this to mean that it is favorable in god 's sight. The word there is grace it literally says in the in the Bible. This is grace. This is grace when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering un- unjustly. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is grace. Now, I think he's saying more than than just this. this, this gives you favor in God's eyes. I think what he's saying, this is a gracious thing that God is doing for you to allow you to be in this position to do what's right even in the midst of suffering now why would we think so well he continues on and I think it's consistent Jesus, Jesus gives us his example verse 21 for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When we do right, before God, conscientious, trying to to live under his rule, uh, we are entrusting ourselves to God and putting ourselves in his hands. And one day we know, because he judges justly, he will make everything right. It's a gracious thing because it pushes us. It pushes us out from our own self-sufficiency to having put ourselves in the Lord's hands. Paul picks up this theme in Philippians. He says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake it has been granted to you now that word granted in Philippians 129 is the word is the verb form of the word grace it has been given as a free gift to you to believe in God and to suffer for him I like the first gift don't want the second one I want the belief part don't want the suffering part but but Paul here in Philippians 1.29 and Peter here are saying it's a gracious thing. It's a gift from God to be able to do what's right and to suffer for it. It helps us to trust ourselves to the Lord. It also helps us to grow in our relationship with the Lord because we are pushed out away from our own self-dependence and we have to entrust ourselves to him ourselves in his hands and we look to him to help us get through whatever it is we're going through maybe we've got a bad boss our working conditions you know this is how we often apply these slave master uh uh, verses in the scriptures we think about you know especially if you're the employee you're thinking about the employer And uh, you feel like you are a slave and he's the master and he's treating you unjustly. But maybe you are in a situation where you're being treated unfairly and you don't really have a recourse to to action because you need the job. You're desperate for work and you have to just take what you've got. And you have to deal with a, a bad boss. Well, we need to continue to entrust ourselves to God in the midst of that difficulty. Do what's right mindful of God, and trusting ourselves to him. Or maybe you, are, uh, you have been mistreated by a loved one, your relationship infidelities, or some sort of mistreatment in, in relationship with someone, a loved one even, family member. Continue to do what's right, entrusting yourselves to the Lord, mindful of God and what he's called you to do. Or maybe you're going through illness or disease. We've been studying Job in in Sunday school. And Job suffered, and it wasn't because of any sin that he did. His friends came along and said, well, Job, you must have sinned because God's getting you now. And Job says, no, it's not. And, and we know, as if you read the first two chapters of Job, you know that it wasn't because of any sin that Job had committed that he was suffering. It was actually to settle an argument between God and Satan that Job was suffering. And, and, and Job had to continue to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. He had, he had no recourse. He was, he was, so maybe you're going through an illness or disease and, you know, our temptation in all these situations, especially in the illness and disease, is to think, well, what have I done to deserve this? Well, maybe you haven't done anything to deserve this. But keep trusting yourself to the Lord. Keep doing what is right. Keep trusting him. Now, he points us not only to Jesus' example, but Jesus' purpose, and that takes us even deeper into it. Yes, Jesus, Jesus gives us an example of one who entrusted himself to the, to the Lord. God's going to sort it all out in the end. Where there is injustice and oppression, he is going to bring it into that, and we'll sing a lot about that in, in uh, some of the great carols uh, of the season, of Christmas season. Far as the curse is found, he's going to lift oppression, uh, joy to the world, hymns like that but look at verse 24 he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed for you are straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls the the important phrase here is in verse 24 he died for us that we might die to sin, and live to righteousness. The whole purpose of what Jesus did is to make us holy. Peter's already been talking about that in chapter 1. We are to be holy uh, because he is holy. Uh, He has died and sacrificed himself on our behalf, not to allow us to wallow in sin and continue our own way, but to free us from sin, to make sin go away in our lives. And part of the way that he does that is by allowing us to go through suffering. You know, it's the it's the uh, the fiery furnace that burns away the dross and and purifies us like gold that Peter talks about. It's the process where he's working in us, and that's why it's a grace thing. It's a gracious thing. It is His grace to allow us to suffer. We don't want it. It's painful, but as the Apostle Paul said, they're light and momentary trials compared to the eternal weight of glory. What he's doing in us is important. And see, that probably doesn't comfort many people here today, but it's really sometimes the only way that you can put one foot in front of the other during suffering is to remember that one day God's going to make it all right. Uh, He's got a purpose behind all this. He is getting rid of the 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 sin in my life and making me cling closer to him. These things are for my own good, for, for the eternal blessing of my soul. That's what Peter's reminding them of today. It's consistent with Romans 8 twenty eight. I want to read more than Romans 8 twenty eight because we we often just read verse 28, but you got to keep on going to see the full purpose of God. We know that for those who love Uh, who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this is what God's doing. See, yes, We can know that all things are working together for our good because because He has foreknown us. He has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. He is making us like His Son. And we are going to be part of His family. We are part of His family. And those whom He predestined and called, He's going to not only justify but glorify one day. They are going to be perfectly like His Son. That's what we're looking forward to. So if you're suffering today, going through difficulties, being treated unjustly or oppressed, yes, we should take the opportunity to make things right if, if we have the recourse to do so. But whatever our circumstances, continue to do what's right. Don't revile back, don't react. But like Christ, keep entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly. Now some of us here today might be suffering for our sins. You know, sometimes we do suffer for our sins. We make bad choices and there are consequences to those choices. Well, if you are suffering for your sins, as it says here, return to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. It's as simple as that. As Peter's telling them you he's the people to whom he's writing he's saying you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls if you are suffering for your sins if if you are under sin and and you recognize that return to the shepherd and overseer of your soul and you will be cleansed and washed and the process of God turning you into uh, the image of Christ will begin and progress and move along and You know, there's nothing better than living with a clean conscience to know that you are in right relationship with God. So when trouble comes, you can think, okay, I'm Christ's child. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, This suffering is not because of my sins, because Christ has already paid for those. I know that I can just entrust myself to the Lord and see the great work that he's going to do in me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this encouragement to us today. We pray that you would help us as we go through whatever it is we might be suffering through. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust you, build up our faith, help us to remember what you're doing in our lives, and that you've not abandoned us, uh, but that you're ever pulling us closer to you may we not resist that but may we come running to you the shepherd and overseer of our souls and we pray this in jesus name amen well be still my soul is a great